Greetings, friends, and welcome to another edition of Pushing the Envelope, music decidedly left of center, featuring the finest in the outer realms of contemporary music from the worlds of rock, jazz, classical, world music, spoken word, ambient, electroacoustic, etc., 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 with a healthy dollop of new and classic progressive rock and jazz rock fusion. Today, we celebrate what was actually yesterday. International Tuba Day, the first Friday of May, designated gent named Joel Day founded International Tuba Day in 1979 while attending Lower Marion High School in suburban Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, being one of only two tuba players in the band and finding a lack of respect from his fellow classmates, he decided to set a day aside for the recognition as reputable musicians. International Tuba Day was created for both tuba players and non-tuba players alike to learn more about the significance of the tuba in our musical society. A day to see how the tuba is the backbone of the band with the capability of playing more, much more, than just oompa and to recognize the tuba player as being a talented master of musical performance who physically comes in all different shapes and sizes. We opened with Swedish tubist Kjetil Mikkelbust playing a composition from Stefan Klaverdahl entitled I Heard Behind Me a Loud Voice, and that's off the album Electric Tuba out on the CY Contemporary label from 2009. Per Stefan Klaverdahl, this is essentially a piece on beats. It is an experiment with repeating 16th notes and climbing scales. The title is from the Book of Revelation and relates to the feeling of rapture spoken of in the text. In some genres and in traditional music, a loud bass and accelerating rhythms are often used to produce feelings of ecstasy. Ways you may make contact with yours truly, Joel Crutt, at Pushing the Envelope via email. Pushing the envelope, W-H-U-S, all one big long word, at gmail.com. Or check out the Twitter feed at E-N-V-P-U-S-H-E-R, numeral one. And to check out this and other episodes of Pushing the Envelope, search on Pushing the Envelope at podbean.com. We're going to enter phase one featuring... The Capriccio for Tuba and Marimba, composed by William Penn, featuring Jared Williams on Tuba and Kevin Meyer on Marimba off an album entitled Get It, a 2021 release on the Potenza Music label. Happy International Tuba Day! Thank you. 
And so we return. We are in the process of celebrating International Tuba Day, which occurred yesterday, being the first Friday in the month of May. We ended phase one with an interesting release, not playing the, well, playing it in a very roundabout way, singing next to a tuba by the river near Pope Road, June 25th, 2020, from a digital release out on Bandcamp called A Tuba with a Microphone in It, from someone who goes by the name of IDM Theft Able. IDM Theft Able. This is a collection of the audio from my video series which is up on YouTube, a tuba with a microphone in it, from April 2020. This project is still in progress, but so many folks had been asking for the audio from these videos that I thought I'd make a collection available. Prior to that, tubist John Hansen from his album Electric Tuba, digital release from 2021, we heard a track called Neon Waddle. In his notes, a tuba album completely stuffed to the brim with tuba. The limitation that I set for this album was that I would only use my tuba and body as the source of every sound. Before that, Meltdown composed by tubist Jonathan Sass as part of Gerhard Meinl's Tuba Sextet off the Angel record release from 1992. And don't ask me why I own this, but I saw it in a dollar rack someplace. It had some contemporary compositions and thought, yeah, this will work. Off an album called Tuba, a six tuba musical romp. Thanks to the imaginative Gerhard Meinl, a fourth-generation German tuba manufacturing scion who had the extremely incongruous vision of all tuba chamber music, we now have these recordings. What the liner notes write about Jonathan Sass really is all over the place, but it's entertaining. Jonathan Sass has been called the tuba's answer to Miles Davis, and his music here sizzles. The minor tuba sextet spent much of the rehearsal for this slapping their knees and rapping out phrases, even scatting under Sass's watchful eye. The results are the record's wildest dynamics and most irresistible rhythms. This is a way-out-there jazz, down to the sudden disarray, closer actually to pure Scandinavian jazz, a rarity in today's funk-tinged American jazz scene, and not all that far from the jazzy all-American optimism of the late Leonard Bernstein. Yes, Leonard Bernstein, that jazz icon. Jonathan Sass's Meltdown. Before that, a piece by composer Alec Wilder, who I am currently going through a phase of listening to tons of his music. We heard his Sonata for Tuba and Piano out on the Golden Crest label from 1965, featuring Harvey Phillips on tuba and either or Bernie Layton or Tate Sanford on piano, and going to Alec Wilder's 
Memorial website states Alec Wilder's music is a unique blend of American musical traditions, among them jazz and the American popular song, and basic classical European forms and techniques. As such, it fiercely resists all labeling. Although it often pained Alec that his music was not more widely accepted by either jazz or classical performers, undeterred, he wrote a great deal of music of a remarkable originality in many forms, sonatas, suites, concertos, operas, ballets, art songs, woodwind quintets, brass quintets, jazz suites, and hundreds of popular songs. Many times this music wasn't jazz enough for the jazzers, or highbrow, classical, or avant-garde enough for the classical establishment. In essence, Wilder's music was so unique in its originality that it didn't fit into any of the preordained musical slots and stylistic pigeonholes. His music was never out of vogue, because, in effect, it was never in vogue. Its non-stereotypical specialness virtually precluded any widespread acceptance. And if you listen to a bunch of his stuff, that pretty much nails it. His chamber music is beautifully arranged for really strange ensembles, many of which feature woodwind quintets with lead harpsichord, and it's just fascinating stuff, so I would recommend highly that you check out the music of Alec Wilder. And we open that set with Capriccio for Tuba and Marimba, featuring Jared Williams on Tuba and Kevin Meyer on Marimba, playing a composition of William Penn. From the album Get It, out on the Potenza, P-O-T-E-N-Z-A, music label from 2021. We're going to continue with an extended work entitled The Trinity, based on the story of Roger Bobo for tuba and piano. And this features Avital Handler on tuba, Anna Kavalarova on piano. Text and reader, the late Roger Bobo, who passed away earlier this year in February, who was like world-renowned tubist. And this was composed by Israeli musician Anna Siegel, and it's a digital release on, on Bandcamp. This piece is based on the story The Trinity, which was written by Roger Bobo in Tokyo late September of 2005. And he put this story up on his blog page, and you can go up online and find it and read through it. When I read this story on Roger's page on his blog, Ms. Siegel notes, I immediately heard the music and wanted to turn the story written on the piece of paper into a musical story in which Roger's memories, the sounds of a tuba, and a piano would be intertwined. At the time... The COVID-19 pandemic began. It was very difficult for us to organize the process of recording. Roger had to record at home. I'm very grateful for his efforts. I know it was not easy for him to do. The day Roger sent me the last recorded part of the story, I rushed to the sound engineer to finish the mix of the project. In October 2021, Roger Bobo started a tour of America and Europe, and the release of the musical version of The Trinity was to take place after its return. But something went wrong, and the tour had to be interrupted. Basically, medical reasons. Roger Bobo, like I said, passed away earlier this year on February 12th. So we're going to hear The Trinity, 
based on the story of Roger Bobo, featuring Roger Bobo. And then we're going to hear the classic Tubby the Tuba. And when I come back on at the end, I will give you some information. It's really interesting how that piece came to be. But first, the Trinity from Anna Siegel. As we enter phase two of today's International Tuba Day Extravaganza here on 91.7 WHUS. My name is Roger Bobo. I'm a musician. For many years, I made my living playing tuba in symphony orchestras. Now at age 83, I spend most of my time teaching and conducting. I am not a religious man, although in my agnosticism, I have to admit I am a searcher. Further, I need to say I have no history of occultism, extrasensory perception, communication with the dead, or anything like that. Although I do take a distant interest in such things, I am aware that for some reason or other, those who practice the occult arts are attracted to me, and I do sometimes find them fascinating. Perhaps in the occult, I should also call myself a searcher because as in religion, it's not the answers that I feel are important. It's the process of the search that makes my life richer.
On Valentine's Day, 1971, I lost my three-and-a-half-year-old son, Young, who I loved dearly. Through my years of searching after his death, there is something truly amazing I would like to share with anyone who might be interested. In my skepticism regarding the occult, I've paid little attention to what people call miracles or magic. But through this period of searching, on three occasions, I encountered something which required that I must pay attention, and I feel it needs to be shared. When I was a boy of five, six, and seven years old, my family would all get into the dark blue 1938 Plymouth four-door sedan and drive the 350-mile eight-hour trip north to June Lake in central California. 
From that very first trip in 1943, my world started opening and expanding far beyond the horizons visible at my home in Eagle Rock, a middle-class suburban part of Los Angeles. For a young boy, June Lake and its surrounding area, with its rich geological history and amazing natural beauty, was a truly magical place. The ancient volcanoes, the beautiful lakes, the animals, mountains, the smell of the forest were all enhanced by the togetherness of my family, my mother, my father, my two older sisters, Martha and Peggy. There were the day trips to a place that had huge cracks in the ground caused by ancient earthquakes, where men would climb down and disappear in mysterious caves and deep, dark shadows. Mountains of lava and obsidians, views from the rims of long inactive volcanoes that were now filled with lakes of vivid green water. And there was the travertine rock mine with the red and white stones that looked like strips of bacon in a mysterious place where nothing grew and stories echoed of secret, sacred native grounds. And there was the fireplace in the cabin where the family would sit and talk into the night about things that I did not, and sometimes did, understand. One year there was talk about a powerful bomb that America dropped on a city in Japan called Hiroshima, and that the war might end soon. It's strange to think that 60 years later I would be working and living in Hiroshima. Thank you. 
There was fishing with my father when I caught fish and he didn't. And there were the walks with my father into those mountains above June Lake that are as magical today as they were then. We would get up before sunrise and walk down the road to the two giant boulders that stood balanced one on the other, where we would turn and find the trail that went up the mountain. It was just starting to get light. As we ascended, I noticed the ground was covered with a carpet of small pine cones that were so perfect I started filling my pockets with them to take home. My dad told me to save some room for other beautiful things we would see on the way. He also told me that the most beautiful thing of all would be the sunrise, which would happen in just a few minutes. Not knowing what to expect, I waited as we walked and soon it happened. First the sky started to turn a pinkish-orange color, then to yellow, which got brighter and brighter until it exploded into a blinding gold. As it shined through the trees, it made golden stripes that spotlighted the ground. The small pine cones ignited with golden light, and the woods came to life. We could hear many different kinds of birds, and we even saw two deer dash across a small meadow that were sensed already. My dad was a great woodcarver. He could take a piece of wood and turn it into a dog, a cat, or a horse. Once he carved a lizard on a log which looked so real that people jumped when they saw it. At that age, I had been ill and the trek up the mountain was hard for me and frequently my father would pick me up and carry me on his shoulders. Subsequently, having carried Jan on my shoulders on another June Lake trail, I am now aware how tiring it must have been, since Jan was younger and smaller than I was at that time with my father. However, I walked most of the time, and I watched my dad make himself a walking stick, probably to support his back after carrying me up the hill. 
And of course, when he had a walking stick, I wanted one too. I think he welcomed the chance to sit and rest while he worked on making one for me. I remember it very well. He found a straight piece of wood about an inch in diameter and a little over a meter long. He took his knife and peeled the bark off. Then he carved a beautiful spiral from the top about eight inches down. And under the spiral, he carved five notches, one for each of my years. I was very proud of that walking stick. I wish I had kept it but at some point in the day, I left it behind somewhere. I remember both my dad and I were disappointed that it was lost. We ended up in a huge, beautiful grove of birch trees, and my dad took out his knife again and carved an R for Roger on one of the trees next to the trail. He told me that I could come back to that spot 50 years later I would be able to see that R. That hike was one of the finest times I ever had with my father. Jan had died just eight months before, and his mother and I had separated three months before. She had moved back home to Amsterdam, the Netherlands, where I had played in the Concertgebouw Orchestra. I was in bad shape, and if it was not for my position in the L.A. Philharmonic, I'm sure I wouldn't have survived. Now there was a two-week break from the orchestra and I had to do something to focus my scattered mind. I decided to get in the car and drive to June Lake and try to find some center and stability to my life. I left Los Angeles before daylight and saw the sunrise as I was driving through the Mojave Desert. I arrived at June Lake in the early afternoon. It was a warm day in the early fall and the colors were amazing. 
There was a strange feeling as I drove past the balance boulders into the village where I had rented the same cabin where my family had stayed when I was a boy. I spent the afternoon following the places I used to go with my family. Much of it was unchanged. I had been there with Jan and his mother, Marco, for a weekend the year before, but this time was different. This time, for me, it was no longer the same world. Before sunrise, I passed the balance boulders and turned up the dirt road that I remember led to the start of the trail, but no trail was visible. No matter where I looked, I could not find it. Finally, I just went back to where I thought it was in the first place and started my hike. After about 10 minutes, the trail slowly became visible. It had not been maintained for many years and I could only hope that I was really on the correct path. As it got lighter, I knew it was the real trail, or better put, what was left of it. Clearly, this was no longer a frequently used path. As dawn started to illuminate the sky, I was anticipating the sunrise I experienced 28 years before. I was not disappointed. In fact, it was even more beautiful than I remembered. First came the pink, then the orange, then the yellow, and then the explosion of gold. Because it was autumn, the colors were far more vivid than in 1943. It was cold and the wind was blowing, and as I looked up, I could distinguish the different sounds the wind would make as it went through the different kinds of trees. And I could hear from the sound which directions the winds were changing. Suddenly, several deer appeared out of nowhere and just as suddenly disappeared.
The carpet of pine cones was there again, but there was more to see and feel as a 32-year-old rather than a 5-year-old. These pine cones were layered on the ground by years. The top layer was the new ones, and that had just started to fall, golden brown and perfect. Just below these were the ones from the previous year, a little grayer and starting to crumble. About every two inches down, you could see another layer of color, brown to dark brown to gray, down to dark gray and black fragments, at finally merging into rich mountain soil. They were also pleasant to walk on because of their structure created sort of a springiness. Holding one of the most beautiful new pine cones in my hand, I had wondered if it would ever be possible for a diamond cutter to copy that structure in faceting, not with perfect jeweler's symmetry, but with nature's slightly distorted spiral symmetry, which at least to my eye was far more beautiful. My heart was beating faster as I approached the grove of birch trees where my father had carved the R 28 years before. Not having planned it, suddenly I realized that my quest for the day was to find that tree. Through the next hours, I allowed myself to become a child again, randomly walking carefree and exploring everything in sight. I looked under logs to see if I could find animals. I jumped up and grabbed branches on trees and swung, and I would pull loose bark from the trees looking for insects. I would find rocks and do target practice on distant trees, and I would find sticks and jab and explore everything in sight that seemed interesting to me. Well, in this mode of play, I was also more or less following the trail, and I had a sudden shock when, in the midst of the birch trees, I arrived at a huge clearing that had not been there the last time. Quickly, I saw that it was the top part of the elaborate June Mountain Ski Lift Complex. Suddenly, I realized I was standing on a spot where a year before I had carried Jan on my shoulders, and 28 years before, 
I was sitting on my father's shoulders. I had ridden up that ski lift with Jan, put him on my shoulders, and walked up the dirt road that was used for the ski lift's construction. The dirt road and the old trail crossed. Unthinkingly, I reached down and pulled a piece of wood from an old fallen tree that had obviously been split by lightning years before. The piece of wood that I pulled off was extraordinary. It was about a meter long. The surface that had been facing the elements was a silver gray, and the inner surface that had still been attached to the main body of the tree was a beautiful golden brown color. A third of the way down was a branch about 18 inches long, and on the inside was the rest of the branch, this beautiful taper, which had been embedded in the body of the tree trunk. In other words, I was holding a cross, a beautiful organic cross created by nature. The symbolism of that cross at that place where I had been a boy on my father's shoulders and where as a man I had carried my son on my shoulders was deeply moving. I was brought up as a Christian, but later made the decision to seek my own answers. This extraordinary piece of wood certainly brought to mind the Father, the Son, and whatever that apex of the cross represents. The Holy Spirit? I'm not completely satisfied with that. What is that place in the cross section between being a child and being a parent? Perhaps it is the present. Perhaps the Bible quotation could also be explained as the state of consciousness peculiar to our species, the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. Isn't it strange how trying to move beyond a dogma, often we create another dogma? I will continue looking for an answer. Thank you. 
Once upon a time, there was an orchestra which was all busy tuning up. First, the oboe gave his A to the strings, to the woodwinds, to the brass. Up and around the scales they raced helter-skelter, faster and faster. Tubby the tuba, a fat little tuba, puffing away, but all so slow. Oh, what lovely music, thought Tubby, and sighed. Here, what's the matter, said people the piccolo. said Tubby. Every time we do a new piece, you all get such pretty melodies to play. And I never, never a pretty melody. But people never write pretty melodies for tubas. It just isn't done. Oh, there's the conductor. Shh. First, the violins danced the lovely little tune on their strings. Then they cried to the flute, catch. Got it, cried the flute. My turn, tooted the trumpet. And the rest joined in. The cello. The oboe, bassoon, while Tubby went umpa, umpa. Catch me, cried the little tune, catch me. Got you, cried Tubby. Oh, you're sitting on me, said the little tune. Poor Tubby picked up the flat little tune and tried to squeeze it back into shape. You clumsy fool, snapped the violin. I'm sorry, Mr. Fiddle, said Tubby. Fiddle, indeed! And the violins quivered with great anger. You will please address us as violins. Fiddle, indeed. Tubby, said the conductor. Tubby, what is the matter? 
please, sir. I thought it would be so nice to dance with the pretty little tune instead of going umpa, umpa all the time. Dance, lots of violins, dance. Well, really. The French horn quietly put his hand to his mouth and smiled. And the whole orchestra began to laugh. <laughs> Tubby was walking home with people to pick along. Please, people, said Tubby. I just feel so bad. I don't think I want any company. I understand, said people. Good night. Good night, said Tubby. The moon was out. Tubby went to the river and sat down on a log, and he looked at himself in the water. Tubby, please, Mr. Frog, come back. I didn't mean to be impolite. Back hopped the frog. Oh, that's all right. I'm used to it. No one pays any attention to me either. Really, said Tubby? Why, of course. Every night I sit here and sing my heart out. But does anyone listen to me? No. Can you sing? asked Tubby. Can I sing? Listen. Mm -hmm. 
lovely, said Tubby. You try it, said the frog. Oh, thank you, said Tubby. Say, you're a very fine tuber. Do you know it? Tubby, you should try that with your orchestra sometime. Oh, I will, said Tubby. Goodbye, Mr. Frog. And off went Tubby, as happy as happy could be. Hmm, said the frog. Most appreciative audience I've ever had. Fine musician, that tuba. Bug up, bug up, lovely evening, bug up, bug up. I said lovely evening, clunk, 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 clunk. I said beautiful evening, hello, bug up, hello, bug up. Good night. The next day, the orchestra was busy tuning up for the rehearsal and buzzing with excitement over the arrival of the great new conductor, Senor Pizzicato. Tubby practiced his umpaw and smiled to himself. People of the piccolo caught his eye. Feeling better? Aha, winked Tubby. Here he comes, called the French horn. Here comes Senor Pizzicato. All right, begin. Tubby began to play his own little melody. Oh, that wretched tuba snapped the violins. He'll disgrace us. The trombone stuck out his tongue. And the trumpet snickered. Tubby, said Senor Pizzicato. Tubby, I've never heard a tuba play a melody before. Let's hear the rest of it. Oh, said Tubby. Why, how perfectly wonderful, said the strings. Please, Tubby, may we sing your tune, too? How about me, cried the xylophone. And me, said the trombone. May I, said the celeste. Here I come, cold people.
Well, we've done it, haven't we, Tubby? It was the bullfrog sitting right beside him. We have our points, too, don't we? Oh, thought Tubby, how happy I am. wrap up another edition of Pushing the Envelope 2023 edition celebrating International Tuba Day ending with Drums and Tuba off Drums and Tuba Live a digital release from 2016 a track called Plethora before that the famous Tubby the Tuba where many of us were introduced to the tuba featured Herbert Jenkel on tuba narration by actor Victor Jory, composed by George Kleinsinger, and the story and lyrics from Paul Tripp. And a little bit of a story. Kleinsinger met Paul Tripp when the latter appeared in the former's opera. In Kleinsinger's liner notes for the Peter Pan record release, which isn't the one we heard, Ours is the original 1945 edition. He recalls the origin of the story. Tubby came out of a real-life happening while attending a rehearsal of a work of mine performed by the NBC Symphony. A sad and curious event occurred. The conductor kept admonishing the tuba to play his umpas softer, time after time. You see, it was summer, and some of the bases were on vacation, so this tuba, Herbert Jenkel, was endeavoring to fill in for the missing bass players. Eventually, the tuba was asked not to play at all. No one disputed that Mr. Jenkel is a great tubist, but it was Mozart they were playing, and the umpas were a bit heavy. After the rehearsal was over, the frustrated tubist came over and asked me very plaintively, whether I would consider writing a concerto for solo tuba and orchestra. Sitting with me was my friend, the writer Paul Tripp. We were both struck by the comic, tragic aspects of the request. The poor instrument wanted his solo melody to play, thus Tubby the tuba was born. And for a happier ending still, the man hired to play the first recording of Tubby was that same frustrated tuba player. And interestingly, in reading through information on Roger Bobo, he commented on Tubby the Tuba as well, stating that most adults probably wouldn't get seriously upset over Tubby the Tuba, that popular musical narrative about an overlooked instrument that wants to stand out from the orchestral crowd, but just mention the piece to Los Angeles Philharmonic tubist Roger Bobo, and his bearded face assumes a pained expression. I fear that the piece is poignantly accurate, he said, shaking his head during a recent interview. I feel like I'm an extension of that character. 
There are some people who are satisfied to perform their function and go home. Then there are others who have this insatiable drive to go out and play solos. I fear I am one of those. So we heard Tubby the Tuba. And we started that set out with the Trinity, based on the story of Roger Bobo for tuba and orchestra, featuring Avatal Handler on tuba, Anna Kavalarova on piano, text and reader Roger Bobo, with the piece composed by Anna Siegel. Have a good week, friends. We will see you next time. Until then, take care. <laughs>